Welcome to episode 5 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as voted by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016, which is not that far away at all. Joining me once again is Mr. John M. Wilson, as we're discussing X-Men, The Dark Phoenix Saga. Welcome back, John. Yes. And now we're going to talk about the story that happened before the story we talked about last time. It's all sorts of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, almost like the brain of this me is going to be sent back to last time's me to talk about that story. But anyways, the Dark Phoenix Saga. Good X-Men stuff here. This is a story that basically is a culmination of everything Chris Claremont had done since he came on the book. Oh, yes. The the points for this... The first explicit point was set up in issue 100, when Jean Grey resurrected herself from her death. This is before mm-hmm. John Byrne came on as penciler. To just run through the creative team, Claremont did the scripting, but Claremont and Byrne plotted together. Byrne penciled, Terry Austin inked. The colors on various issues were done by either Bob Sharon or Glynis Ween. Letters by Tom Morzachowski. Now, the editor role on this book changed hands a couple of times. It started for the first few issues under Roger Stern, shifted over to Jim Salakrup, and Louise Jones, later Louise Simonson, stepped in to finish the last two issues, all under editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. Just to spoil a little bit of the discussion, this is clearly a plan that editorial was just allowing the creative team to run with, because there's no sign in the pages that editorial had changed. Often when editors change, you can see the change in the book. I didn't see any sign of that as this continued. No. The cover dates ranged from January to October 1980, Release dates ranged from October 16th, 1979 to July 7th, 1980. And as we said, it came in at number five in the countdown. So this is the Dark Phoenix Saga. Last week, we talked about how Dark Phoenix Saga and Days of Future Past were, from a continuity perspective, probably the two seminal X-Men stories. And how Days of Future Past was used as a jumping off point to inspire a very good X-Men movie. This one was used as the jumping off point to inspire a not very good X-Men movie. (laughs) I have a confession to make. I actually rather liked the last stand when it came out. Uh, I know that's, that's probably a dark secret. I shouldn't say in public, but I didn't know this story from a comic book perspective when that film hit. So I expect that knowing it now, if I were to try to go back and watch that film again, I'd probably have a very different reaction. I don't know if it can honestly be called a decent film, but a terrible adaptation, or if it's just not a very good film. But you know, I when I rewatched that film for the podcast, I actually found I enjoyed it more the second time through because it is a horrible adaptation of the story. And knowing that going in the second time, I was able to get over my gut reaction, right, and settle in and enjoy elements of it for what it was because there really were two plot threads that were picked up. There was this one and Astonishing X-Men Gifted Story Arc was also a feed into that, which mm-hmm. we discussed in a, in that podcast many, many months ago. And I actually found that the Gifted Arc did work pretty well. Yeah, that's one of the things I liked about it. But, but yeah, the, it's not even that they handled the stories, that they take the idea of the Dark Phoenix power and a corrupt Jean Grey and do something completely and totally different with it. They They very much do. Yeah, it's... As the Days of Future Past was a launching point for their story, the Dark Phoenix Saga was a launching point for their own story. For the third X-Men film, it's just that the story they came up with out of the Days of Future Past idea was better than the story they came up with from this idea. And part of that is because up to this point, 
there hadn't been a lot of really truly long-term storytelling in Marvel. We'd have some plot threads dropped here and there, but it's a couple panels to set this up, and they'd come back to it six or seven issues later, and the creators would tell you, sometimes they didn't know what story would come out of that. You know, Len Wein would say, he'd write an issue of Amazing Spider-Man, and he knew that he was going to need something to get stories ideas going down the road because they're under such tight schedules. So Peter gets a letter. You know, he left it on the dresser. He doesn't read it now. And, you know, have the artist focus on that letter but not say who it's from because they didn't know who it's from. They didn't know what story was coming. When they needed a way to start a story idea three or four months down the road, he could say, oh, yeah, there was that letter I seeded. What would that have been? And then come up with the idea. Prior to this, the only story arc I could think of in Marvel that was really planned and plotted that was more than three issues was the kree scroll War. And even that is structured as two or three chapters, right? There's a three-issue arc, a three-issue arc, a two-issue arc within that eight-issue story. There are a couple of exceptions to that. The Thanos War in Captain Marvel comes to mind. That story lasted for over a year in that comic. But that's one storyline that he went into it probably with an outline and came out at the end of the story having told what he wanted to tell. The other exception I think of is Steve Eaglehart. Or Englehart? Yeah. He did some long-term storytelling. I'm specifically thinking of his Mantis character in The Avengers. That was That was a very slow burn. But both of those... I think, pale in comparison to this. Yeah, because as you've already said, you said it was since the start of his run, this is really a burn that lasted more than 40 issues. And some of those issues were bi-monthly. So he came on in 1975, and this is now 1980. Yeah. And he's bringing, you know, well, it starts in 79, but, but by the end of issue 138, it's 1980, and he has brought five years of storytelling to a head. And that's pretty phenomenal. It is. It's one of the few, and that's, again, a big part of my issue with the movie, is we didn't get the build-up time that I felt this story had. Because there's a lot feeding into this. As I said, starting with Gene's resurrection. And there's what they, they now refer to in the Marvel audiences, or in the Marvel offices, as Claremonting, where you're putting in those little seeds you're going to come back to later. Chris Claremont was such a master of it as far as the Marvel editorial was concerned, they named the practice after him. And that's what we're getting here. So the things that he'd been doing, starting with issue 100 when Jean brought herself back to life, culminate in this story, where Jean's power levels have been building and building and building for years. And now it's finally in here. And even the issue where, where Jean brings herself back to life in 100, that's part of a saga that he starts with his first issue, 96. So from issue 96, where he begins the story of Xavier getting dreams from space, that story involves Phoenix coming in issue 100. But even whenever that wraps up with issue 108, the Phoenix is there and their ideas that continue on all the way up to 137 and 138. So, so his entire time in the book is, is here. And it's, it's huge. Cause really, I mean, what happens in this issue is Chris Claremont kills one of the most important people to Marvel history. And I don't know that Marvel had done that before with a, with a hero. I mean, they've killed Gwen Stacy and supporting characters occasionally, but has Marvel killed one of their heroes before this story? Uh, they did. Actually, even in X-Men, they had killed Professor X, where one creative team, that the creative team that killed him, intended for him to be dead. Okay, because yeah, they felt, you're right. You know, they, they wanted the principle to be gone so that these characters could grow up and continue. And then it was a later creative team that brought it back as a ruse and kept building the stories beyond that. 
and, and something similar is going to end up happening with, with this story. But, but yeah, you're right. I, I would actually go so far as to qualify that as still a supporting cast member because the, the point to killing Xavier, like you said, was to have the X-Men grow up to become their own people and their own heroes and no longer need their teacher. So even though I consider Xavier a full-fledged member of the X-Men cast, I can still see that move as, you know. Yeah, the role he filled was, you know, he was less a Reed Richards-style leader and more of a Thomas and Martha Wayne or Ben Parker kind of leader. He was that parental figure that a lot of them didn't have, and that's why they felt it was the right move to take him off the books. And that's why he has been killed and brought back and killed many times over the years. (laughs) <laughs> Although the latest one from Avengers vs. X-Men, at least at the time of this recording, seems to have stuck. Secret Wars is in progress. All bets are off. Right. But at the time of this recording in June 2015, I think this is the longest Professor Xavier has ever been dead. And long- he's stayed dead longer than most characters who appear in the first issue of their franchise. Well, shall we get into uh, into some plot discussion? Yes, we should. So I'll start with a synopsis of issue 129. God Spare the Child. Now, Claremont wrote very serialized storytelling. So if you're trying to get the continuity of Marvel to line up at the time, it can be tricky. Because, as we've said, this is bi-monthly. Sometimes there is no break between issues and between stories. So what the X-Men experience in like four or five hours, other titles experience over three weeks. The issues are monthly by this point. But yeah. Yeah. The the point still stands. There's a reason that X-Men have kind of historically stood on their own. Because for their first 15 years after their revival, Claremont was doing his own thing all over there with his own characters. Yeah, and he was doing it so well that, you know, this wasn't a case where the other writers didn't use the characters because they didn't want to use the characters. This is a case of other creators who were saying, no, I'm going to leave those over with Chris because he's doing an awesome job with it and I don't want to mess up his story. (laughs) Would it be worth discussing a couple of the, you know, subplots that are leading into this before you get into the issue? We probably should. So Banshee was one of the new X-Men that came in with giant-sized X-Men number one. After his fight with Moses Magnum, he had strained his vocal cords to the point where his sonic scream was gone. And he has fallen in love with Moira Taggart over in Moira Island. And this issue essentially kicks off with him saying, yeah, you know what? I'm more useful here than on the team. I'm staying behind with Moira. Right. And so he is basically off the X-Men team for quite a long time. Yeah. Claremont felt that the X-Men were less a superhero team and more a group of individuals with powers who were thrown together and had to stay together to survive. So his mentality was that characters would come and go, just as people come and go from jobs and careers, according to what's going on in the workplace. And I like that mentality because it's kind of how I like to see superheroics on teams anyway. Yeah, it, it adds a layer of realism. I can't think of anyone else in the Marvel Universe where they've had that come and go, and it's for some characters, it's more a job than a career, with the possible exception of Hank Pym as superhero rather than Hank Pym as scientist who works with superheroes. He has flipped right. back and forth between those roles, but nobody else really has. Another major development that's been going on here is that Jean Grey has been getting a visitor, and she's not quite fully cognizant of what's going on here. What's happening is that mysterious mutton chop man Jason Wingard has been occasionally crossing her path and anytime this happens, Jean Grey suddenly finds herself living in the 18th century. And she's madly in love with this Jason Wingard person and their, their sort of 18th century nobility. But in her 18th century life, she is not a good person. 
Uh, we've seen her hunting humans and, and, and other such things that are just, you know, she owns slaves. She's, she's not awesome. And Jason Wingard is slowly opening up dark sides of her personality for purposes that are going to become clear in this story. But that's happened a couple times. And when Jean Grey comes back to herself, she remembers the experience and rationalizes it as somehow, some way living out a life of one of her ancestors that she doesn't really know why that's happening, but that's what she thinks it is. But when she's in the moment, she has no concept of Jean Grey. She just is this person, this 18th century woman. And so that's happened two or three times before this story opens as a subplot going through other stories. Yeah. As another subplot that's been coming through this is that Professor Xavier has been off the books for a while, and this really has been Cyclops' team. And Cyclops has found that this is a very different team than the original X-Men with a very different dynamic, and he needs to handle them differently than they have been handled in the past which is another element that's going to change the relationship dynamics between Cyclops and Professor X, which is a, a factor throughout this story. Because, I mean, Cyclops feels, and probably justifiably so, that the X-Men have grown up a bit, and uh, they don't necessarily need demerits and, you know, Xavier Daddy looking over their shoulder every moment. Right. And the other one that I, I think is relevant to mention isn't really a plot thread, but uh, as we mentioned, John Byrne is a co-plotter. He's also a Canadian, and when he took over the book, Wolverine was not very popular, and editorial was ready to take him out and just basically mothball the character. And John Byrne didn't like the fact that Marvel's only prominent Canadian superhero was about to get mothballed. And he argued with editorial and managed to convince them to let him work together with Chris Claremont and give plot threads for Wolverine that they felt would engage readers more. And he so he was on a mission to increase Wolverine's popularity when this story began. And it's <laughs> it, it, it's going to show. <laughs> oh, yes. And you know what? It's going to work. Yeah, it really is. When I first read this, Wolverine being a badass was just something that I was already familiar with, and I didn't really pay much attention to the bits that we're going to come to. And somebody was like, oh, and then that really, really cool scene where such and such. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that did happen. But then going back and reading through it my second time, I realized just how huge those bits were for Wolverine and realizing that was the first time it had been done like that for that character. Uh, I saw, I saw the significance. Oh yeah. So leading in from there, we get more conversations. Jamie Madrox chooses to stay on wire Island, but he started there. So that's no great surprise. And then as we're in the plane flying away, we get Colossus grappling with the fact that he was the, the one that killed Proteus. So he's really struggling with the choice he needed to make. And he's saying that, you know, he recognizes that it was Proteus or Moira. You know, one person was going to die or the other. And he chose to intervene and kill the person who was probably going to keep on killing because Moira would not have been his first death. But Colossus is still struggling with that, which is a nice point with Colossus because he, he is a very noble person. As we said when we discussed Giant Size X-Men number one, he was one of those characters that was trying to throw a positive light on Russia and say, you know, these guys are not all bad. Mm-hmm. And this is a case of this. He is that stoic. He does have the communist upbringing where he's thinking about the greater good more so than himself. He's not going to voice these concerns with anyone else. But it's just a nice moment for Colossus's character that I wanted to point out because he doesn't get a lot of prominence in the rest of the story. It's also a theme that Claremont appears to want to have a conversation about because in one of the issues that follows immediately after this, bridging 
the very tiny gap between this story and Days of Future Past, Nightcrawler and Wolverine have a similar, almost identical discussion about Wolverine killing. You know, you do it. It's necessary. I'm not saying you shouldn't have done it on any of the times that you've done it, but does that make it right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a nice conversation to have. It is. And it, it helps tie the continuity together. So you know that, yeah, these people are haunted by the actions that they're sometimes forced to make. And it just makes the characters more real. And that's one of the things I see so much in the letters columns from these issues is that readers of the time are just gobsmacked at the reality. Um, I would use the term verisimilitude, but just, just the feeling that these are actual people that they're reading about. Oh yeah. That goes a long way. Cut from there to Jason Wingard. And, you know, he's in a plane near theirs and he forces another time slip on Jean. So she's experiencing things in the past and she does snap out of it a little bit when Cyclops comes. And this is where they, I think they formally declare their love for each other. It's one of the earliest times, if not the first time where they really agree that, yes, they are very much madly in love. Now, they return to X-Mansion. There's somebody there. They're getting ready. They can't tell if it's friend or foe, so they're going to go in prepared for trouble. But as it turns out, it's Professor Xavier returned from deep space. And he soon realizes that things aren't working when he tries putting the X-Men through danger room trials and, you know, gives Wolverine demerits, to which Cyclops says, <laughs> you know, you can give him 10 demerits, you can give him 100. He's not going to care. He's he's a governmental assassin, and you're giving him demerits for misbehaving in the practice session. Yeah, and Professor Xavier is saying, well, yeah, the fact that the methods we tried before didn't work when you were running them, he's putting that on Cyclops and not on the team. Right, or on himself. Yeah, so he's saying now he's going to take more of a steady hand because this, this X-Men team is not running the way he wants the X-Men team to be running. Right. The conversation gets interrupted. Which could be seen as petty. But it's really just a parent watching their child grow up and not really knowing how to handle that yet. Yeah, this, it it almost feels like, you know, the grandparent who doesn't agree with the way their own children are raising their children or their grandchildren. Yes. Oh, that's so frustrating as a parent sometimes. Yeah. (laughs) But that's a whole other, that's a whole other podcast. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, this is also two teachers discussing. Right. And one of whom works in the private field and has a lot of contact with parents of various generations. So, yeah. But anyway, cut from here to more about the Hellfire Club, which, I mean, for this, Claremont and Byrne drew inspiration from a group which existed in real life named the Hellfire Club. So all this debauchery, everything you see, there was a group of Britain's elite that basically ran their own hedonistic club called the Hellfire Club in the late 1800s. Which I I don't remember if you were the one who told me that on a previous episode of this, or if it was Rachel and Miles, but I love that fact of history. Yeah, I learned it from Rachel and Miles, so... Okay, and that must have been where I heard it. Yeah, where whoever said it to you first, that's where the information came from. So, cut from there to one of the two mutants that Cerebro has detected, and it's Kitty Pride, or Catherine Pride, who's been suffering from some headaches. You know, her parents' marriage is in rough shape, which is a plot thread that will be returned to after this story arc is done. But Kitty lies on her bed with a headache and wakes up in the living room without her headaches. So she's a little confused. Her parents are confused. She's running up embarrassed. And Emma Frost is here because the Hellfire Club managed to tap Cerebro. So they have access to everything that the X-Men have in their computer systems. So they know where these mutants are that Xavier's Cerebro just identified. More so, they know all the Danger Room programming. Yeah, that's something that's, that's worth mentioning back in the whole subplot concept is that various seemingly unrelated conflicts that the X-Men have had over the last, you know, 30 issues 
have actually been sponsored and backed by a mysterious group whom we have not met up to this point, but the X-Men don't realize that the Hellfire Club has been targeting them for a while. And one of those attacks involves somebody getting inside their base and basically downloading their database. Yeah. And actually, as we said, bugging the computers. So when these two new mutant contacts come up, the Hellfire Club get notified by them or about them as well, which is why Emma Frost is here in order to try and recruit Kitty Pride for her Massachusetts Academy that played such a big role in the New Mutants Chris Claremont run that I discussed with Al Sedano some months ago. It all comes back together. Yeah. So the X-Men show up and, you know, Kitty sees them and, you know, that one guy is, or the wheelchair is so huge, kind of neat looking too. You know, and she does kind of like Colossus as the, the hunky one that comes out at some point in this issue. But this is a different approach that Emma Frost took. So Kitty had an immediate dislike for Emma Frost. She's a great judge of character, apparently. <laughs> well, she's a genius. She is. And it's while Professor Xavier is talking to her parents, Storm and the rest of the X-Men take Kitty to a malt shop where they are attacked by people in armor who were sent by the Hellfire Club. And Wolverine starts fighting with his mask off. So this may actually set up, you know, revealing their identities publicly in the long term. But Storm, Colossus, and Wolverine all fight to protect Kitty, who can kind of protect herself because nobody knows or understands what her powers are yet, although she falls through the brick wall of the malt shop. Now, these androids that come are very clearly tailored to these X-Men. So the X-Men only gain the upper hand in battle when they switch opponents, because Wolverine's android was geared for Wolverine, not so much defense against Colossus. Wolverine can make short work of the android that was designed for Storm and so forth. I keep calling them androids because I'm thinking of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s androids. It's a similar design, but these are people in armored suits, which is kind of important. Later on, when Emma Frost comes in, takes advantage of their distraction, and shuts them all down with a powerful mental blast. So she is very much a powerful telepath. And these people in armor who were sent to capture all of them failed to do so properly and are killed using self-destruct equipment in their armor. Mm. Now, members of the Hellfire Club take off with the captive X-Men. So they've captured Colossus, Storm, and Wolverine, though the new mutant got away in Kitty Pride, or so they think. It turns out that Kitty Pride is aboard their hovercraft, using her ability to pass through solid objects. And all she knows is she likes the X-Men, she doesn't like Emma Frost, and the X-Men need help to defend themselves from Emma Frost. She's going to do what she can to provide it. So, first appearance of Kitty Pride, and she's already being awesome. There, There's violence and, and, and trouble happening all around her, but even though she's 13 and a half, and ba- it, it, it seems to imply it woke up with her powers this morning. <laughs> she's going to do what she can to help. Oh, yes. Yeah, she is. Of the two mutants that that Cerebro just identified, she is easily my favorite. Mm-hmm. The other mutant that Cerebro has just identified that another branch of the X-Men has gone to check out is uh, in the title of issue 130. The title of that is Dazzler. And uh, what we see is Gene, Scott, and Nightcrawler showing up in a sort of shady part of town to visit a disco scott and gene are in civvies nightcrawler is in his nightcrawler outfit because he's nightcrawler and in previous issues he had had like a uh, i forget what they have an image inducer maybe that he has just decided not to use anymore because he's trying to get more comfortable with himself so he's not going to try to be human anymore he's just gonna be nightcrawler but that means that in this operation to connect with dazzler he's going to kind of take a shadowy support role so he stays outside and hides in the shadows while Scott and Jean go into this 
really gross disco. I say really gross because John Byrne's art makes this place look really gross. So they're in this disco and people are not nice. Like there's a lot of shady behavior going on. Jean is secretly kind of liking it and liking the fact that she likes it. And she's not really sure what to do about that. But it's the first hint that the things that Wingard is doing with her mind while she's in 18th century weird mode are actually starting to open up dark recesses of Jean's subconscious. Her personality is changing a bit because of Jason Wingard. They don't realize that they're being monitored by more of the masked characters, you know, the, the Hellfire Club foot soldiers. They report in, we see Sebastian Shaw, the head of the Hellfire Club, talking with Jason Wingard, who is continuing to do his subversion of Ms. Gray, because they want Jean Gray to join the Hellfire Club. I don't know if it's said in this particular scene or later, but they want her to join as their Black Queen, because the ranks of the inner circle of the Hellfire Club are named after chess pieces. Yeah, and this scene does have Jason Wingard saying that, in the meantime, I'll continue to work on subverting Miss Gray and gathering her of her own free will into our fold. Right, so he's subverting her subconscious so that whenever she joins them, it's because she wants to. And that's nasty. That's that's some ugly work that he is doing on her. Don't like that at all. Um, but anyway, so yeah, Emma Frost is their white queen. They want Jean Grey as their black queen. I'm guessing Sebastian Shaw is one of the kings. I don't think that ever actually comes out in this story, but I assume that he would be. He is the black king, but I don't recall a point where they reference him as that during this story. Right. This is, of course, the first appearance of all these people. We, uh, even though the Hellfire Club has played a shadowy role, we never actually met any of the people or seen them up front until this storyline. So Sebastian Shaw's here. Um, we cut across to Emma Frost having captured all of the X-Men, stripping them down to their undies and putting them in cages, because that's what you do. And Kitty Pride is sneaking around, you know, phasing in and out of walls and everything just to stay hidden. And this is also the point where we learn that they've kid- kidnapped Professor Xavier as well as the rest of the team. And he is strapped down to a table with... with uh, An electrosleep sedation inducer. Right. Strapped to his head. Yeah. Kitty Pride's at a bit of a loss of what to do, so while everyone is looking the other way, she goes and sneaks up to Storm's cage and whispers to her. Now, it's kind of a bold move because she just really doesn't know what to do. But since all the bad guys are still in the room, three feet away, looking the other direction, they hear what's going on and they turn around and see Kitty, and Kitty dives through the floor to get away. Yeah, after Storm gives her a slip of paper saying, phone this number, tell whoever answers what happens. Right. So Kitty has a mission. She's going to go to a phone. We cut back to the disco, the evil disco, and Jason has flown from the Hellfire Club to the evil disco, and he runs across Jean Grey, and Jean Grey is automatically transferred to the past, where it is now her wedding to Jason Wingard. And at their wedding, after they say their vows and pledge their love and do all that, Jean Grey discards her wedding gown to reveal her Black Queen garb. Long may she reign. And the White Queen and Black Queen basically wear corsets, underwear, and capes. That's their thing. And high boots. So she's all in black and red. Her hair is done up in a Kate Mulgrew bun from the first season of Voyager. And 
she's kissing Jason Wingard in her dream, and she's kissing Jason Wingard in reality. And Scott does not know what to do about this. And whenever Jean Grey translates her brain back into regular mind, she's freaked out about it as well. She turns to Scott and wants to explain, but all of a sudden, we are distracted by the one character that you would expect to find in an X-Men comic in a disco. And that is Alison Blair, the Mutherflubin Dazzler. She is here singing and being awesome. She's got roller skates. She's got her big old hair. She has she everything. A disco, disco ball on a necklace. Yes. <laughs> a microphone on a long ass cord that's like wrapped around her because that's the way cords, you know, are. If you've ever had to like navigate a stage with a corded microphone, it's the most annoying thing ever because that thing will wrap around you. Anyways, so um, there, you know, Scott's ready to, to, to figure out what to do with the Dazzler. We cut scenes to the phone in the car of the X-Men. The X-Men had car phones in 1980. That's awesome. There's a lot of innovation on these two pages for 1980. Don't want to dwell on it too much because it actually has no relevance on this story. But the character of Dazzler was conceived and co-created working in conjunction with a record label that Marvel was planning to spin her off into the first comic series that was exclusive to comic book retailers, the, the specialty shops, and they successfully did that. Part of the plan was also to hire an actress to be Dazzler and release actual recordings, as they did with the monkeys for their TV series. That part fell through. The ideas behind the creation of the Dazzler are really awesome and really high concept. Sadly, they had so many delays and things falling through that by the time they actually got their Dazzler production off the ground, Disco was no longer the thing, and the Dazzler had a hard time maintaining popularity and readership in her book. Also because it wasn't well-written, but... There's that. (laughs) I mean, it's not a terrible read. There's there's tons of comics out there that are worse. There are. I I read it to see... I have some nieces who are just starting to get interested in superheroes, but they still wanted stories with girl characters. So I picked up a few things to see, is this a, a girl character that is appropriate for young girls? And... Yeah, I don't know that Dazzler was appropriate for girls of any age, since most of the relationships in that story were skeezy guy hitting on her, she tells him to back off, he doesn't take no for an answer and keeps going until she just relents and starts dating a skeezy guy. (laughs) This is a repeating pattern. Yeah. I just, every relationship she had in that story until she started dating Angel left such a bad taste in my mouth that I just, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, less than awesome, but... You know, here, her first appearance, they're, they're doing awesome things with her because, because John Byrne and Chris Claremont can take uh, a pile of dirt and tell an amazing story about it that looks fantastic on the page. So Nightcrawler takes Kitty Pride's call in the car. So now both teams of X-Men are aware, or, you know, the, the one team of X-Men is aware of the other one being in trouble, or at least Nightcrawler is aware and he can communicate with the others. Mandroids show up and I, as I flip through these X-Men comics, I, I keep on passing the ROM Space Knight ad that looks like a comic, and so it feels like it's part of the story. So Mandroids show up, and then ROM crash lands on the planet. But then we keep on going with more Mandroids fighting Nightcrawler. In the disco, Dazzler is doing her light show. I, there's not a lot of commentary on her powers. It's like Cyclops and Jean Grey are just kind of there, and Dazzler is just kind of there. And then the Mandroids attack. Yeah, at this point, her ability is to dazzle people. So. 
we get the impression that she is generating the light show. I don't remember them making it clear that she's actually converting the sound into light. That's something that becomes clear in her comic, but not so much in this issue. So anyways, Mandroids come out. Jean Grey mentally translates their civilian clothes into their costumes. And that kind of wigs Cyclops out. He's not entirely comfortable with that, but, you know, can't really deal with that thought right now because there are people attacking them. But he continues, he does inner monologue about it while he's blasting around because you can do that in comics. Mm-hmm. Fight, 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 fighting McFightenstein. Copyright Andrew Leyland. Right. They manage to subdue the mandroids. They talk to Dazzler, say, hey, we're the X-Men. Let me see if there's anything important that comes out of that conversation. Uh, mostly come with me if you want to live. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, for your own safety, I think you better come with us because everyone's attacking right now. And they drive off in their car with Nightcrawler to go and find the other X-Men. And that's when we see Jason Wingard lighting up a cigarette in the alley. But there's a, uh, a silhouette behind him that has a different profile. Cyclops notices the shadow on the wall as he's driving away and mentally files it away for later review. But this is the first hint that Jason Wingard is not all he appears to be. Yeah. And he is, in fact, someone that Cyclops would recognize. Right. But that takes us into issue 131. Yes. Prisoners of the White Queen. At least that's what the cover proclaims, where we see the X-Men both in a cage, sort of off to the side in one color, as well as in full color fighting their way out with Kitty in the bottom. And the White Queen looming over it all, probably wearing more than she's ever worn because she just kind of have her fading to white. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that some of the art for the White Queen on the inside might not have passed for a cover. Yeah, and it also seems that her, her bustier has turned into a floor because the Hellfire Club guard in front of the cages is casting shadows on it. <laughs> yes. So that they're melding different ideas. But we open it up and we get the title of the issue, Run for Your Life. You say it like Chris Frankenstein. Run for your life! Oh, yes. So they are coming out. We see Kitty meeting Xavier and the X-Men for the first time. The power of the Phoenix to just instantly stop a car without a thought freaks everyone out, quite frankly, including Kitty, who's even more freaked out when Nightcrawler comes to her rescue. Scott is a little upset over how much power Jean Grey used, and she says, well, yeah, you didn't hear the girl's terror in your mind. You didn't hear the thoughts of those killers chasing her. They those animals got no more than they deserved. So we're starting to see some of of the change in Jean Grey here again. Anyway, they move up to the safety of the roof. Jean changes her costume back into regular clothes to go meet Kitty and sort of greet her, bring her into the fold. And as they're coming through, Jean interrogates one of the Hellfire Club guards just by reading his mind and learning all about the Hellfire Club that way. And she makes connections to Jason Wingard, realizes he's part of the group, but she's not sharing that information yet. When they show up at the Frost estate, where Emma Frost is, you know, all the X-Men are tied up in the back of this vehicle, and the Hellfire Club guard is you know, talking to the rest. They get in and get access that way. We later learn the guard who's driving this car is unconscious and is Jean's puppet, and she's running this without batting an eye or breaking a sweat. It's effortless for her. Cut inside to Emma Frost interrogating the X-Men by pulling the information that she wants out of their mind using essentially the same tactics that Jean just used only more painful. And Kitty comes out, Kitty manages to use her powers to break Wolverine out of his prison, or out of his cage. Then Kitty gets zapped. This is really his first introduction to who Kitty is. He realizes that she's there to help him and gets attacked, and that just gives him the excuse he's looking for to cut loose on someone. This It might be worth mentioning that when Kitty pops 
Wolverine out of his cell. That's the first time we've seen her power uh, affecting electronics. She's surprised that it happens. She phases through the lock and it just opens up and she's like, oh, what was that? Yeah. Yeah, that is worth mentioning. It's establishing powers, which don't really come into play in this story, but it is a major part of her power set from this point forward. Now, from here, we cut back to the, the X-Men as they're coming in and they're saying, oh, you know, they're the guard that they have on, as a puppet is being told, you know, we're not taking any chances with these guys. You're not going anywhere until the escort arrives. And that's when the X-Men realize the jig is up. So Cyclops just blasts through the roof. Dazzler dazzles them. As, as you do. And they start going out with an all-out assault to try and get their teammates out. Now, Jean Grey quickly identifies where Emma Frost is and goes to face her one at a time. We see more of Nightcrawler using the same sort of fighting style as when he was introduced to the second X-Men film, teleporting from head to head to head to head, just knocking people out one at a time. I love that kind of stuff. He doesn't always use it. I don't know why he doesn't always use it, but I love that just like, bam, 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 during a fight. Yeah, it could just be because momentum is conserved, so he needs a certain setup for it. He even says that you know he's been wanting to do this again since the last time he did it in issue 111, which is 20 issues back. Okay. So it could just be he needs a particular setup to do it. Yeah, because that, that is one thing about Nightcrawler's power set that I don't know how consistently it's used later, but whenever he's in motion and he teleports, he his his momentum, like you said, is conserved. He will continue on in a similar arc with a similar speed after he teleports. Yeah. Which is in one of the very, very early stories, he's falling and he can't teleport to the ground because he'll hit the ground at the same speed he's falling. Yeah. Which also means that he should be a good thing for him that his teleportation range is three miles because, you know, if you were to go a quarter of the way around the earth, well, that could get messy. <laughs> uh, just read uh, Theory and Practice of Teleportation by Larry Niven for more details on that. But we cut from there back to, you know, the X-Men as they're getting out and ready to fight. And Wolverine is very much ready to fight. But right now he's following the prof scent. As the X-Men are starting to regroup, the two teams are getting pulled together. Jean Grey and Emma Frost are still fighting quite ferociously. It's a pretty amazing, like, psychic battle they're having where it's visually depicted as Emma Frost blasting Jean Grey with green and Phoenix responding by turning into a firebird. But it's it's essentially a psychic battle between the two of them. It is, although Jean Grey's firebird is visible. Storm is reacting to seeing the Phoenix effect around her, as she saw with the crystal. So it does, you know, eventually go to the White Queen striking in a desperate attempt to blow the place up, and Jean is apparently the only survivor, having protected Storm as well. So those two came out, but they believe Emma Frost has killed herself, rather than be captured. So the X-Men then, you know, invite Dazzler to join them, but she's decided to go her own way. Because she has a solo series to go do, eventually. Yes, so if you ignore our advice, you can go read that in the two essential volumes. And from there, we go back to meeting the Prides. And I like this. It's a very reasonable reaction. Kitty has been gone overnight, and the parents are freaking out. They've already called the police. They're furious with Ac- with Professor X and this team. They were supposed to go to a malt shop. I mean, they're, they're supposed to take her out to a malt shop, sort of sweet talker, and joining their school. And now it's the next day, and their daughter's only now showing up. Yeah, and the mulch up burned to the ground, and they thought that Kitty died until the police went through the bodies and realized she wasn't there. And there's just this little thing off to the side where Jean Grey says, enough's enough. So Carmen Pride, Kitty's father, is in the middle of going from, I don't know what your game is, mister, but it's good to see you again. My wife and I were very impressed by your presentation yesterday. In fact, you've been discussing you and your school for gifted youngsters quite a lot since you left. And Cyclops and Professor X are both just completely stunned as Mr. Pride is saying, no, call me Carmen. and settling down and this is where cyclops realizes that you know Jean just changes her mind she's saying it's harmless this is the the ultimate goal it's better for everyone she's modified their memories and 
The issue ends with Cyclops and Storm being more than a little disturbed by this. They both know there's something wrong, and they're worried if it's an outside influence, we've got to figure it out before it's too late. Dun-dun-dun! So that takes us into issue 132, entitled, And Hellfire is Their Name. And we open with the X-Men reuniting with long-lost friend Angel in New Mexico. Warren Worthington III, heir apparent to one of America's larger private fortunes. He left the team back at the beginning of the run. He was on the champions for a while, but that is a past tense situation. And he's just, you know, hanging out in one of his, you know, luscious estates, being an angel and just flying around and being rich and having a leisurely life. He gives Jean Grey a very familiar kiss whenever she shows up. Because they had, you know, a bit, a sort of a romantic thing going on back before her feelings for Cyclops became really cemented in the, in the minds of the writers. Yeah, that was the original love triangle in the X-Men. Right. So he's, he's, he greets a bit familiarly. And, and two people are not exactly thrilled with that, both Scott and Angel's own girlfriend, Candy Southern, who is there. And uh, before you go on, I just want to back up a couple of panels here when the X-Men are marveling at the, the beauty of Angel's home. Mm-hmm. Having seen the buttes of New Mexico and the Canadian Rockies that Wolverine is talking about, Wolverine's right. Mm. These hills ain't nothing compared to the Canadian Rockies. Now that's beautiful country. Yeah. And that's something, I mean, John Byrne at the time was living in Calgary, which is about an hour's drive from the Canadian Rockies. On a clear weather day, you can see the foothills. And if you have the opportunity to check out Banff or Jasper, I highly recommend it. If it's one or the other, uh, Banff is easier to get to from Calgary, which has better international flights. Jasper is easiest to get to out of Edmonton and is because it's a little bit tougher to get to. It's less overrun by tourists. So, you know, just Canadian guy three hours from Jasper putting in a plug for the local tourism. Right. Well, there's a little bit of a storytelling thing here that I'm not entirely sure exactly how it was supposed to work. Scott Summers wants to talk to the angel. So the angel swoops him off to uh, a nearby plateau of some sort. Yeah, a butte. Covering half a dozen miles in twice as many minutes. Right. And they're just talking. And Cyclops, you know, recaps the events. Someone to, to, you know, for the purpose of telling Warren that someone is after the X-Men. And he tells Warren that they call themselves the Hellfire Club. And that's when we learn that Warren Worthington is a member of the Hellfire Club. And so is his girlfriend, Candy. Because the Hellfire Club is not just an evil organization. It's also just a place for the, you know, wealthy to go and have a bit of, you know, illicit leisure time. The reason I have a weird thing about this particular storytelling beat, and perhaps I missed something in, in my memory or in my reading, is that it doesn't appear that Scott knew that Warren was a member. And so why did they come to Warren for information about it? I, I don't think he was asking Warren for information initially. I thought he was coming here for the reason he states in the next panel. That's why I brought the X-Men here instead of home, partly to throw our foes off balance and buy us some breathing space, partly because I don't think the mansion's safe anymore. Okay, so that's that's the, the, the line of dialogue that I forgot about that. Yeah, and then he goes on to say something has been happening to Gene, and Warren is one of the people who knows Gene best as one of the original X-Men. Okay, so they're coming to hide out to get away from where they might be found, and it, it happens to be serendipitous that Angel knows a bit more about the Hellfire Club, and so they can team up. But as Cyclops mentions Gene, suddenly Phoenix is there. Yeah, and this is I mean, the reason I mentioned that they've gone half a dozen miles in twice as many minutes, that tells me that it's been 12 minutes since they left. 
reading these pages and this conversation would take, what, two or three minutes? Mm-hmm. So it's been about 15 minutes since they left. And when Jean shows up, she says, you fellas have been talking for hours. Time for a break. I don't see how it can be hours. <laughs> I will allow for comic book storytelling to imply that their conversation has gone longer than what's actually on the page. Certainly the colors in the sky have changed from full on daytime to sunset. So you're right. If we just go by what's explicitly on the page, certainly it's only been a short time, but sometimes comics imply that conversations are more in depth and take longer than what we actually see on the page. We're actually only getting the highlights of events on the page whenever the you know quote unquote real life events would have taken longer. So I, I can see it. It's one of those things that sometimes happens in comics. Yeah, it's I mean if you look at Civil War, there's a conversation that happens in one of the main series issues that adds about eighteen panels and twelve other lines of dialogue in another issue that ties in. It can happen. I just to me it would have been nice had they restructured the conversation so that it starts with Scott saying something's going on with Gene, ends with him learning that Warren's part of the Hellfire Club, and then put the pause there. With like an intervening caption saying Scott explains or something like that so that you can yeah. allow for time to pass. Yeah, I can see that. I had a similar thought when I read it. I just no prize it in my head. Yeah. yeah all, all it takes to clean that up is a caption, but it's just annoying that the caption's not there. So Gene has brought a picnic basket, and Warren is like, all of a sudden, I have the feeling I'm not wanted. And he flies away and leaves them alone. I... Would not be surprised if, if Gene Gray hadn't put that idea in his head to make himself scarce. Yeah. Not the way Gene is now. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Cause what immediately what she does is she lays out a blanket on top of the butte. She changes her clothes to something casual and sensual and skimpy without being, you know, I don't know. Yeah. She's not dressed like Emma Frost. It's, I mean, it, it's kind of like a slightly conservative two piece bathing suit. Yeah, it, 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 it could be casual summer wear, but at the same time, if my girlfriend changed into that, um, I'd be suddenly getting thoughts yeah. of what might be happening next, which is exactly what happens next. Yeah, it, it really is as conservative as a toothpiece bathing suit can get. Right. Right. It's not a one piece. It's not an over gown. It really is. You know, it, it's a two piece, but it's material all the way around. It's not just a bikini kind of thing. But at the same time, it's a very, very nice look yeah. for her. So. She she takes off Scott's visor, which freaks him out, but with her subconscious mind, like not even consciously having to do it because she maintains this control as events unfold off panel, she is holding back his eye blasts. And so G, uh, Scott is able to look at her, they're able to make out and make love without any worry of his blasts going on. And something else that happens during this encounter that we find out later is that Jean establishes a psychic rapport between the two of them that, while it doesn't give them every single insight into each other's minds, it helps them to maintain an awareness of each other when they're not physically in proximity. Yeah. And there's a few other things. They compare notes. This is when she tells Cyclops about the time slips. And we get this information piece by piece. And I like the way it's laid out. It's, you know, when you find out, yeah, they've talked about it and shared information, it establishes there's things in this scene that we didn't see. So then when the psychic rapport comes out later, it it's nice. It gets us through a bit of a cliffhanger with a perfectly valid explanation because it's already been established that more happened there than we saw. Right. Certainly things happen between them that we can't see in a comic book. But apparently they do have stamina because it goes from there to a week later. <laughs> so 
yeah, we close on this scene and we go to the first panel of the next page and we get like one of those transitionary captions that like closes out one scene while you're changing to another. But the camera is on the butte still. So it's like, this is our moment. Let's not waste it. And you're looking at their butte from a long ways away as the sun is setting and it says a week passes. So it just the literal reading of that panel could be a week of sex passes. <laughs> but, but of course it's not exactly meaning that we, we do change scene to New York in the sewers. Wolverine and Nightcrawler are going to go invade the headquarters of the Hellfire Club. And it's worth noting the caption does establish this is four blocks downtown from Avengers Mansion. Okay, is that significant later? I mean, I, I thought it was kind of a cool location, but I was wondering why they were specifically putting the man, the Hellfire Club so close to Avengers. Do you know of any significance there? Yeah, it actually helps out establishing time frames in later issues. Oh, okay. Wolverine and Nightcrawler are walking through the sewers. In a bit of a Chekhov's gun moment, Wolverine slashes a power line, but mainly just slashes the insulation. He leaves the wires exposed. And he says, if something goes wrong tonight, a surprise blackout could come in handy. Yeah, that's exactly what's going to happen several issues later. It's one of those moments where the events that lead to that couldn't really have been foreseen by Wolverine, but hey, whatever. Yeah, well, they do mention when they first see it that the water's rising. Wolverine's first line of dialogue on this page, water's rising, Nightcrawler. How much farther we got to go? So that's why he slashes the wires. Okay, okay. Yeah, so there's no guarantee they're going to rise enough to burn it out, but... But he's like, hey, that could, that, this could be cool. I'll do this now. Okay, so it's not as unforeseeably serendipitous as I had thought. Anyway, so above ground, the rest of the X-Men, Cyclops, Phoenix, Colossus, and Storm are in their X-Limo, parked around the corner. They're in communication with Xavier and Angel back at, uh, I'm guessing Angel's mansion. Angel is now in costume. He's no longer in the uh, summer shirt and short shorts. Yeah, and it would be in... in uh... Angel's Mansion, because they did mention at least you'll be safe in New Mexico. Right. The X-Men's plans are to visit a party of the Hellfire Club incognito and hopefully not be recognized. This immediately fails, <laughs> because as soon as they walk in, one of the members of the Hellfire Club, one Donald Pierce, recognizes them on the monitor, and so Sebastian Shaw, a man named Leland, whose other name I'm not remembering off the top of my head I think and jason wingard is it harry leland it might be or henry henry leland sounds better that might be more that might be what it is so they're all talking about okay what this could mean and jason wingard is tasked to l bringing gene gray under his control to lead the attack on the x-men now jason wingard's control over gene gray has been going on for weeks and sebastian shaw brings it up for weeks now you've been boasting that Miss Gray is yours, body and soul. Tonight's your chance to prove it. So he goes down to the party where Scott and Jean are dancing and basically cuts in. And immediately, she is once again in the 18th century, dancing with Jason Wingard, her beloved, while Scott stands in the background in a hat that covers his eyes so that you never see his eyes in the flashback sequences. Now, Scott is not privy to this visual setup. But we do see what's in Lady Jean Grey's mind. Yeah, we also do see uh, an error in the reference, the footnote caption. Yes. Yeah, the previous three issues had all been edited by by Roger Stern. This is Jim Selleckup's first issue as editor. So whenever he says this is a lot like what happened in the night Jean and I first met Dazzler, 
that was actually only two issues earlier in 130, but it references 129. Okay, so Scott follows Jason and Jean up the stairs, and at one moment, Jason looks back at Scott and, for whatever reason, drops the illusion. So Jason Wingard is Jason Wingard, but Scott has up to now only known him under a pseudonym, Mastermind. And so Mastermind is the one who has been messing with Gene's mind um, much more powerfully and intensely than anything we've ever seen before, uh, which will get, you know, techno babble explanation later on. But he's the one who controls Gene Gray. And as Scott follows them, he gets blasted in the face by the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. Gene Gray Phoenix, completely subverted by Jason Wingard and acting it's a little bit confusing because she's, she believe, I think she still believes, yeah, definitely, I don't think it. She still believes that she is in this 18th century setting, but in the 18th century setting, she is acting of her own free will. So she's this other persona in her mind that has been brought out. It's, it's all very strange. It is. And it, I, just for a moment, you said he drops the guys for some reason. I think that was probably to get an aggressive reaction from Scott to make it easier for the Black Queen to act so it feels more like self-defense to her. Okay, okay. Yeah, because that's that's what causes him to come after them more more powerfully, and then she can attack them. Okay, so yeah, the other... That's all supposition on my part. It's not set on the page. That just That's sort of my own... Maybe it's a retcon, a headcanon. That's how I make the pieces fit together. Well, sometimes that's what you have to do with Claremontian writing. He doesn't, he doesn't spell out every detail in a way that I think a lot of the um, greater comics writers write. They they don't put every single detail of the plot on the page. They let you figure out a few things on your own. Yeah. So the other X-Men uh, jump into action because they hear the blast. They hear the fall. Uh, there's a big fight between the Hellfire Club leaders and the X-Men. We find out that Sebastian Shaw is a mutant um, and that his power is to take kinetic energy that he absorbs and translate that into strength of force so he can hit back with as much power as he is hit. Wolverine, no, no, no. Yeah, Wolverine attacks Donald Pierce and finds out that Donald Pierce is randomly a cyborg just because comics. Mm-hmm. And Leland is there and his power is to change the mass of objects and people around him. So he changes Wolverine's mass to crash through the floor, but the effect fades as soon as uh, he's far enough away. And so Wolverine is swept away by the rising water of the sewers below. Yeah, and it is Harry that's established here. Okay. Sebastian Shaw takes down Storm, Nightcrawler has been subdued as well, and so all of the X-Men are either done away with or subdued, and they're all under the control of the Hellfire Club. They are all uh, drinking a toast to the Hellfire Club's new Black Queen, Jean Grey, and we close on Wolverine in the sewers, getting his sort of awareness and strength back. And we have a, a, a super awesome John Byrne panel where he's bringing Wolverine, you know, to the forefront of being awesome. Wolverine looks up at the camera, you know, looking up from the water saying, okay, suckers, you've taken your best shot. Now it's my turn. Next issue, Wolverine alone. Yeah, enough said. That is a classic panel. It's amazing. It's, it's really cool because it just allows Wolverine to be not necessarily for the first time, but it can be argued for the first time, be the character that he will become. Yeah, this is the step that we mentioned when John Byrne said he was going to make Wolverine awesome. You could tell he was pouring his heart and soul into that panel 
because that was the goal. Yeah. If he wanted readers to love Wolverine, this is definitely the moment where he's making that happen. Yeah. And that moment is where we pick up in issue 133, which starts off with Wolverine just pinning himself in a space in the ceiling above two of the, the Hellfire, or above four of the Hellfire Club soldiers with the masks, draws himself down and just starts tearing through them and having the time of his life. And, you know, he's got the odds from three to one down to two to one, not complaining. We see that this is definitely before Hugh Jackman was cast as Wolverine because they're still describing him as a runt. He's being drawn at five <laughs> foot three. And he gets down to one soldier left who's stuttering and going, don't move, fella. And these are hired mercenaries. Emma Frost has said before, they're supposed to be the best hired soldiers money can buy. And this is a nice touch. Now, it could be because we've got a Canadian artist and a British writer. But Wolverine's dialogue, when he's looking at the last guy, is saying, hey, bub, I know what you're thinking. He's hurt, and he's five meters away from me, and I got a full clip of ammo in my rifle. Now, that's probably not what he's thinking. If he's an American soldier, he's probably thinking, he's hurt, and he's 15 feet away from me, and I've got a full clip of ammo in my rifle. <laughs> so it just, to me, it was a nice touch that the Canadian character is phrasing things in meters. That is funny. I, I didn't pick up on that. That's neat. But, yeah, from here, so Wolverine's saying, what are you going to do? You know, question is, can I kill Wolverine before he... He can reach and cut me into shish kebab with those freaky claws of his. Well, bub, Wolverine is virtually unkillable. Wolverine's claws are adamantium, the strongest metal known, capable of slicing through vanadium steel like a hot knife through butter. And five meters of floor ain't much distance at all, for me. It's your play, hero. I'm waiting. The guy drops the gun and Wolverine says, Shoot, I was hoping you'd go for it. Which is, again, how a lot of this is coming out. And Wolverine's saying, You know what? I'm not going to kill you. Or, sorry, I ain't going to kill you. I ain't even going to hurt you provided you tell me all there is to know about the Hellfire Club hotshots who clobbered the X-Men. And then from here we see the X-Men in captivity. They've got inhibitor colors on, or inhibitor fields that'll prevent them from using their powers. Cyclops has a full ruby quartz helmet. So it appears all it really does is inhibit control of their powers, and since his powers are uncontrollable and he just more opens the visor, they're still in effect. Now, in this fantasy, the Black Queen sees you know, Aurora as an escaped slave and others filling in roles from the late 18th century. And, you know, we've got reference to the lockpicks that Storm has in her headdress. And this is where we get the flashback to, you know, building a psychic rapport. And that is a major plot point. Scott is trying to use that psychic rapport to work his way in and get a, a chink in Jean's armor. Now, they wanted Jean to join of her own free will. And she is acting of her own free will, but in the context of this subverted reality. So I don't know if. You know, the Hellfire Club is letting Mastermind, Jason Wingard, do all this. And I guess he's boasted about his ability. I don't know that the Hellfire Club realized that the only way that Wingard was going to get Jean to behave like this is to get her to subconsciously believe she's in another reality. That doesn't seem like a long-term maintainable plan. But hey, it's working for now. And, and maybe, you know, Wingard just didn't tell them that that was necessary because he wanted them to like him. I don't know. Yeah, Wingard is running his own game, and he's not too bright. He he has a few errors along the way. But from here, we cut to an interlude where you know we find that Moira Taggart has realized that you know Professor Xavier helped Jean build in defenses to limit her powers, and those defenses are crumbling. Now, this one I haven't checked as explicitly, but I think there's another slip up in the captions where they reference that Banshee retired from the X Men because of injuries suffered in X Men 119. I could have sworn it was 120. It was the first X-Men issue I ever read reprinted in classic X-Men, but I thought it was originally 120. Anyway, the next interlude is Angel and Professor Xavier 
we learn that Professor Xavier's a little freaked out because he can't build rapport, so he's not monitoring the X-Men. He doesn't know what kind of trouble they're in. And he's also realizing that, yeah, when he came on, the way he came across with Cyclops and tried to take over the team and lead it his way, he may have been wrong about that. Now, cut from there to Wolverine coming in through a dumbwaiter. So he's made his way up the bowels, and now, you know, a Hellfire Club soldier just tells him to freeze and puts a gun to his head before we cut away to, again, Cyclops trying to break through with Gene Psychic Rapport. He does and ends up having a battle on the astral plane with Mastermind. And he realizes that, no, this is, there's more going on than this. This was beyond Mastermind's capabilities when we first learn about it. As that's going on, Wolverine easily takes care of the guard who's got the gun to his head and just basically storms through the room of guests. Everyone's got their, he's got everyone's attention. They're attacking him and he's just taking a beating from a number of soldiers with various clubs. And cut from there to Jason Wingard winning the battle on the astral plane by stabbing Cyclops through the heart, and Cyclops then collapses. Now, as was established when Charles Xavier fought the Shadow King in that flashback, if you die in the astral plane, you die in real life. So Nightcrawler sees this, he declares, he isn't moving, he isn't breathing, Cyclops is dead. And that ends the issue. This goes into your um, different levels of comic book death, because this is literally dies for a cliffhanger, but it's immediately okay in the first panel of the next issue. Yeah, we go from ending with with Nightcrawler claiming Cyclops is dead to starting with Storm Colossus. Look, Cyclops is alive. Now, Chris Claremont is spilling his hand just a little bit with how the story is going to be structured because the next issue caption says, too late the heroes, a prologue to disaster because... The sequence of events that leads to the climax of the Dark Phoenix saga really gets underway with next issue. This death of Cyclops sets things in motion. I don't want to say this. Everything that Jason Wingard has done with Jean Grey has really opened up doors that should not have been opened in ways that nobody could have foreseen. But it's this death of Cyclops and Jean Grey's reaction to it that goes full steam ahead into the events that will lead to the Dark Phoenix and the events that happen after that. So, yes, I did look up that reference. It is 119 that uh, Fe- uh, that Banshee loses his voice. Issue 120 is a fight in Canada with uh, Vindicator. Okay, yeah, so those were my first two issues. I was mistaken. Jim Salakrup was right on that one. I apologize, Mr. Salakrup. So Too Late the Heroes is the title of the next issue, and as we said, Cyclops is just fine. I mean, not just fine. He's almost killed, and he's recovering from the mental blast that he's suffered. It's subtly done through the art before it's explicitly spelled out in dialogue. But the death of Cyclops on the astral plane has messed up Mastermind's hold over Jean Grey. Um, she realizes now that she is seeing illusions, that she is seeing something as uh, the Black Queen that is not actually reality. And so she starts to transition in her mind away from doing any, you know, away from her uh, subversion to Wingard. At this time, Wolverine's slow ascent from the sewers up through the Hellfire Club finally arrives in this room where all these things are taking place. He attacks. Jean Grey, the Black Queen, pretends to be still underneath Jason Wingard's control and knocks Cyclops away. But at the same time, she reaches over and snaps the lock on the mask over Cyclops' face 
So he's able to use his eyes to, <laughs> he knocks his red hood helmet into the back of Donald Pierce's head. Then he directs his blast to the manacles holding the rest of the X-Men. He's doing all of this with Jean Grey's telepathic guide. So she's very precisely showing him where he needs to direct his face to make all of this happen. Then he takes down Leland with his blast. Leland blasts through the wall of the room into the party below. This is the first clue the party below has that things are going bad. Oh, no, wait, that's that's not true because Wolverine fought his way through the party in the last issue, I think. He did. He was surrounded by them, and those guys that were trying to beat him down were still hanging off of him when he burst into the room at the start of this one. So this isn't the first time they've discovered that you know something is going weird, but the party's still going down below. Um, Cyclops then blasts the floor underneath Sebastian Shaw instead of blasting Shaw himself. And when Donald Pierce tries to attack Colossus... Yeah, he does so successfully because Peter is in his flesh and blood form when that okay. happens. I was looking to see if Leland went through the hole. I'm sorry, if Pierce went through the hole, but I can't tell that happens. He, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's Shaw's hole. That's not Pierce. Yeah, so Leland falls through the hole and Wolverine goes after him. There's more fighting. We change scenes to Avengers Mansion, of all places, where the Beast gets an alarm that the Avenger, I'm sorry, that the X-Men are attacking the Hellfire Club. What is actually happening here is that the people in the Hellfire Club are sending out an alarm to the police. Please help us. We're being attacked by the X-Men. And the Beast gets this call for help from the, uh, the, the Avengers are being asked to go help subdue the X-Men for the Hellfire Club. So Beast is sort of in a quandary. As an Avenger, because the Beast has been on the Avengers for some time at this point, as an Avenger, should he call the rest of the team into action against the X-Men? Or as a former X-Man, should he go and help his friends and see what the heck's going on over there that, you know, the police are coming out against them? He decides to act on the side of his previous friends, compatriots, and teammates he does not call the Avengers. He leaves his post on monitor duty, erases references to the call on the computer, and goes to help the X-Men. We change back. There's more fighting. Colossus breaks off Pierce's cybernetic arm. Pierce then jabs the live wires of his own arm into Colossus's face to sort of daze Colossus so he can get away. This works. Nightcrawler, instead of giving Sebastian Shaw a powerful blow, he just sort of juggles him with his feet hoping that the, the the bunch of little bitty teeny tiny blows to keep him in, in motion won't really give him the strength that he needs. This doesn't exactly work because Sebastian Shaw grabs his foot, lands, picks up Nightcrawler, and belts him in the stomach. Hmm. Yeah, but it, it does buy enough time for Storm to come in, too. Yeah, Storm comes in and um, covers Sebastian Shaw in snow, but Shaw throws Nightcrawler into Storm's belly and decides to uh, get away. I want to stay to fight, but I dare not. So the Sebastian, the, the Hellfire Club is making an exit. Cyclops, who now has his visor back on, is in full costume once again, goes down into the party to warn everyone away. But Mastermind is continuing to influence everyone's perceptions and makes everyone think that Cyclops is attacking them. So they're running away from the X-Men. And it's at this moment that the rising water that's been rising from the beginning of the story hits those exposed wires and causes everything to black out. And at this time, Jean Grey reveals to Mastermind that she is no longer under his control whatsoever. She turns on him in a very dark and sinister panel. 
goes inside his mind. Oh, at this point, we get the reveal that his control over her brain was so extreme because he had a mind tap mechanism designed by the White Queen. So his previous powers of just casting illusions and making people see things that aren't there was intensified so that he could actually cause an illusion over Jean Grey's subconscious, not just over her eyes. Anyways, Jean Grey goes into Mastermind's head and basically lobotomizes him. She gives him an awareness of the cosmos that is greater than the human mind can control and can contain. So he gets, you know, greater mental abilities, but he is basically a vegetable as a result. And I don't know enough about X-Men history to know if he ever recovers from this. Yeah, Mastermind does come back. So Okay, I know we get Lady Mastermind way down the road. I don't know if Mastermind himself ever came back, so he does. Okay. Yeah, and it's also... uh classic Marvel, especially Silver Age, Stanley loved to talk about the speed of thought, which is the speed at which this is described. We can measure the speed that thoughts move. It's less than the speed of light. But anyway. <laughs> I don't think we had measured that in 1980, though. I'm guessing that our understanding of the brain was not that high at that point. Yeah. Now, the speed of thought, is that related to electrical speeds in the brain? And doesn't electricity travel at the speed of light? In a regular conductive circuit? So copper, iron, things like that, it travels at about, the electrons themselves travel at about four or five meters per second, but the signal travels more like 40 to 50% of the speed of light. It's kind of like okay. how a red light turns green. You see the, like the wave propagate through. So cars in the back are moving before the, the front cars have actually made all the way. Everyone just kind of starts expanding slowly. And neurons are a little bit slower than that. So still incredibly fast, but not faster than light. Gotcha. Okay. All right, so at this point, the Black Queen has subdued her, um, you know, weeks-long, basically, mental rapist, I guess, to, to put a really blunt term on it. Um, she's subdued him. She rejoins the X-Men. One of the effects that is done in the comic is that whenever she's in Phoenix mode, her dialogue bubbles have a sort of warbly blackness around them. And this has been the case ever since the beginning of this issue. Whenever she pretend attacked Wolverine until now and continuing on, she's had this black, weird, warbly shading around her dialogue bubbles. So she is in Phoenix mode, even though she's in Black Queen clothing here. They all escape. Sebastian Shaw is not happy. He watches from the mansion. They get in the Blackbird which is here for reasons that I guess aren't really that important. I'm going to go into right now. Uh, yeah, that one's not the Blackbird. That one is... That's not the Blackbird. That's just some sort of a shuttle. X-Men Skycraft is the way they refer to it. Okay, so some sort of Skycraft. They're flying away. The police have shown up to take care of the X-Men, but as they're running away, Jean Grey keeps putting her hand to her head. She's not looking well, but, you know, she's she's walking away with them. The last thing we see is... Oh, Scott, your mind's open book to me. I know your feelings, your thoughts, what you're trying to do, but it's too late, my darling, for me, for us, for everything. And we turn the page, and Jean Grey has transmuted into Phoenix, but not the redheaded woman in a green costume that we saw, you know, ever since off and on from 100. Rather, this is more of some sort of deific being. She is red and yellow, but not like clothing, more like it's who she is. She's surrounded by this energy. 
Her face looks very dark and sinister. She recites the same dialogue that she had whenever she first showed up as Phoenix. Hear me, X-Men. No longer am I the woman you knew. I am fire and life incarnate. Now and forever, I am Phoenix. But since this is a darker version of the Phoenix, this is going to be referred to as Dark Phoenix. And the story ends with her exploding the skycraft that contains the X-Men. So opening up all of those branches of her subconscious, allowing her to take on sort of a darker personality, and then having her still be there whenever they uh, they try to kill Cyclops, and so the controls are now off. She cannot contain herself anymore. This darker personality of Jean Grey has melded with the powers of the Phoenix to create this being that is now going to wreak havoc in the next issue. Yeah, and the next issue picks up exactly where that one left off. It's cliffhanger to cliffhanger here with that skycraft exploding and the title Dark Phoenix done in sort of the the energy that's spilling out from that. Yeah, it's a great work from John Byrne to integrate the title with the art. It is, and we see the X-Men here. So Jean's making no attempt to save them. It's essentially up to them to save themselves. Nightcrawler teleports almost immediately and lands, and as we said before, his momentum is conserved. So he lands hard, but not nearly as hard as he would have been if he hadn't taken the shortcut. Colossus just turns his armor in form knowing he'll survive and figures, you know, let Storm take care of the rest. Storm can fly, so that just leaves Wolverine and Cyclops. Storm is able to catch Wolverine and steers him close enough to Cyclops that Wolverine catches Cyclops. So she carries the three of them down. I want to go back to Nor- uh, Nightcrawler's landing, because I think he's actually being pretty clever here. He's falling, and he teleports down. But when he teleports, he's changed his orientation so that he is now falling laterally and rolls across the ground to a halt. It's not the most gentle of landings, but I think it's really pretty clever because he doesn't have the same orientation in space that he had when he bamped out. And so he can, you know, release all of that energy horizontally now, which which is really neat. It is, yeah. It- it is a clever use of his powers, even though it doesn't, yeah, momentum conversation or conservation doesn't work that way. But anyway. You don't think so? You don't think he could it, if, or reorient his velocity? If Yeah, if he's truly conserving momentum, momentum is a vector, not a scalar. So direction is part of momentum. So if momentum was truly conserved, as all the scientists have said it is, then he would be unable to change direction as well. Huh. Now that said, it has later been established that he doesn't teleport instantaneously, but rather travels through a parallel dimension, so he could redirect himself in that case his teleportation works more like magics than than you know the the star trek transporter but then again the star trek transporter is able to take people who are seated and make them stand up and face another direction so Uh, so if if you think of like a portal you could throw a ball through a portal that's facing horizontally but the other end of that portal is facing vertically and so you throw a ball sideways but once it goes to the portal it's now going downward yeah up to this point his powers had never been described as going through portals. He just okay. disappear in one place and appear at the other, conserving momentum. Okay. So it's. I think it was just the writers. They they thought of something that sounds pretty neat, but they didn't understand that conserving momentum in, involves preserving directions as well. Now they do make frequent references to his hellfire and brimstone stench whenever he teleports. So maybe maybe there's more going on in Claremont's mind about the nature of, Cycl- of Nightcrawler's powers, and he's actually put on the page at this point. It could be, but that the parallel dimension thing isn't established until years after Claremont is off the title. Okay. So. Okay. But in any event, they they do manage to get to the ground safely, and 
Jean is now calling herself Dark Phoenix. She's claimed that fully, and she's really showing her powers. She's able to force Colossus back out of his metal form into his human form. She turns the tree he's carrying into solid gold, so Wolverine's unable to help him lift it. Storm is attacking Jean, but really has no chance, nor do Cyclops and Nightcrawler. She just tears through them, and she's ready to destroy them. She says that she didn't want this, my dear ones, and yet it was something I had to do. By striking you down, I cut myself free of the last ties binding me to the person I was, the life I led. You and I are quits now, X-Men. Our paths will cross no more. My destiny lies in the stars. So somehow, some way, the person that she now is wants to wants to get out and get away and go rampage for, I say for reasons unknown, but at the same time, freaking Mastermind has kind of made this happen. He's turned her into someone that is not who she was. Yeah, or at the very least catalyzed it. So we cut from there back to the Hellfire Club, where Shaw is working with Senator Kelly. And Have we mentioned yet that Senator Kelly was at this party the whole time? Because he was name-dropped in passing earlier. Yeah, I don't think we have, because he's never really been relevant, aside from the fact that he's there. So this is setting up the seeds of the story we talked about last week, with Senator Robert Kelly and the Hellfire Club and his position of power and working toward his election. He's at this party of all these rich people, so he's with it's sort of a Council on Foreign Relations Illuminati kind of, you know, conspiracy theory sort of organization that they have going on here. He's there during this party. It's not really that important to this story, but just his existence as a character is set up for the story we talked about last time. Yeah. I mean, we have no indication that he's aware of what the Hellfire Club really is, Mm -hmm. but this is where Sebastian Shaw puts the bug in his ear about restarting the Sentinel program. But as Jean Grey leaves with the full Phoenix effect. It gets noticed. It gets noticed by Beast, who's showing up in the Avengers Quinjet from the Avengers Mansion four blocks away, which explains why he is the first to respond. I think that's that's what I mentioned with establishing was four blocks away. He is the first superpowered person to get there when it's on the police scanners. Because he can bound down those four blocks in pretty, pretty fast effect. Yeah, especially in a Quinjet. Can I push pause to go back to one thing? Okay. Sebastian Shaw is a mutant. Yep. He is in an inner circle of mutants as part of the Hellfire Club, where their mutant identity is a secret to all the other members. And yet, as a mutant, he is encouraging Kelly to reinstate the Sentinel program. Yeah. That seems counterproductive or counterintuitive or certainly counter something. Yeah, I think he's trying to position himself to be in charge of the Sentinel program. Okay. And then sort of override Or at least have it. a hand in it because he's friends with Kelly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, he's trying to look for power and build things with Senator Kelly, but but at this moment, it was Jean leaves. She attracts a lot of attention. So you know, Reed Richards notices that things are on red alert because there's a huge amount of energy that could rival Galactus. Spider-Man's spider sense goes nuts. Doctor Strange notices that there's some great passion and great evil out there, and Silver Surfer senses a kindred soul, so like the Silver Surfer, and yet not at all like him. You know. He says that this is something that's out there to destroy. It's a similar power level and a similar uh, entity category, but of a completely different mindset. Oh, yeah. We get, you know, Dr. Corbeau noticing that there's power out there as she's leaving. So when she leaves the solar system, she leaves a lot. And now we come to a very important page. This is the page that required them to rewrite the ending of this story. So Jean opens up a space warp or a stargate, actually, as she puts it. It's a giant circular hole in space that lets her leap from one section to another, and called Stargate. She needs power, so she feeds off a sun. Now, 
Apparently that part was in the script. What John Byrne added that wasn't in the script was individuals on a populated planet looking up and seeing their son get destroyed. And when Chris Claremont saw that, he had a dialogue later that said, oh yeah, you know, it wasn't just destroyed, there was 5 billion people there. So when the storyline was conceived, she would have shown that she had the power to destroy a solar system, but it would have been an uninhabited solar system with no casualties. Interesting. And as a, as a footnote, the aliens are the same alien species that was involved in Avengers number four, the Captain America return. Yes, they are. I hadn't put that together, but yeah, they are definitely drawn the same way. But I, I believe that that particular being that was in Avengers number four is not on his home world when this happens. I think I've heard that. Yeah, it's, I, I think we, I looked it up when I discussed that with Jim and found his other appearances and it was after that, but. Okay. So I had in my head categorize this as a killing younglings type of moment where dark phoenix has just gone off the rails and in her power mad frenzy is just killing a massive race of beings but from your description of the intention and also from a close look at the actual script she does not explicitly realize that or at least doesn't care enough to pay attention to the fact that her devouring of that planet has actually destroyed an entire race. Yeah, and similar to how she, you know, shortly wipes out the Shi'ar flagship that comes after her, it's it, you know, they they describe her as evil, but she seems to treat those things as so far beneath her that it's just, yeah, you know, whatever. The, uh, my needs are to take precedent, who cares what the side effects are? She no longer cares. Yeah. She's 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 of of a mindset now. It's not that she was nice and now she's bad and she's sort of, you know, maybe half longs for her previous life. She no longer cares. Yeah, not at all. And we cut back from here to the X-Men trying to figure out how to deal with it. And this is when Cyclops realizes that, oh, you know, that psychic rapport he has is still intact. Jean's coming back to Earth and she's hungry. And it is worth noting that Beast is still hanging out with them. Yeah. So they're, they're recovering from their loss of gene. They don't know. They don't really understand what has happened. But as we transition into issue 136, which by the way has an epic cover with Cyclops cradling Dark Phoenix in his arms in a way that is almost, ex, you know, almost pose for pose, uh, translated into the cover of Crisis on Infinite Earths where Superman's cradling Supergirl. Yeah. And that's, I've, I have written emails to a couple of people who've got websites that refer to this as an homage to that. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's not like, you know, people can't cradle dead bodies in their arms, but like Superman's head and facial expression is in the exact same position as this. There are little details in the drawings that are different, but it's definitely an homage cover. Yeah. It's just the causality was reversed. Yeah. It says, don't miss this special issue containing more shocks and surprises than ever before. The final phase of the Phoenix, Child of Light and Darkness, is the title of this story. And we open with Dark Phoenix with a big Phoenix bird effect around her. Her talons are basically holding a star. I don't think she's eating another one. I think it's just like a sort of symbolic representation of where we are with things. I, I think so, yeah. The, the, a reference to her eating Dabari, not her eating another star. The representatives of the Shi'ar Empire are watching this all transpire on their magical monitors. They can watch anything in space. And Lalandra knows this is Jean Grey, but the S, the entity that is Dark Phoenix cannot be allowed to continue. They determine. 
So from that scene, we transition back to Earth, where President Carter is on the screen talking to Jarvis of the Avengers, trying to figure out why the Avengers never responded to his call. And Jarvis isn't really sure either because Beast was on duty and now Beast is gone. Speaking of Beast, we go back to the X-Men. They're still upset about Jean Grey, but they know she's on their, her way back. So they're trying to get ready. Dark Phoenix lands back at her home, revisits her parents, but it's not exactly a joyous reunion. Her parents are at first very happy to see her, and she's happy to see them, but she sees the fear in their minds and reacts very strongly. The Dark Phoenix persona is not very controllable, and she's she does not like the fact that they want her to stay with them. And she blasts a fern in the corner and turns it into crystal and says, what I do to this plant, I could just as easily do to you. And her father, I guess, a religious background that was never explicit on the page before comes out here. And he basically goes into get behind me, Satan kind of language. He tells her, you're not mine, not any part of me. I deny you. I cast you out. And so Dark Phoenix is like, screw you guys, I'm going home. She uh, notices a fog outside. She flies out of her house. The X-Men are present. Nightcrawler clamps a device on her mind that is intended to subdue the Phoenix powers enough for them to be able to uh, to get control of her and beat her in a fight. And it worked. They're winning. It, it's, a, it's, a hard, it's a hard fight, but they are winning. And Wolverine finally gets the drop on her and pulls his claws and is about to kill her. But at that moment, Dark Phoenix's face goes from sinister to gene-like. And she says, finish me with your claws. I beg you, I don't want to hurt you. But that catches Wolverine off guard enough that he can't land the killing blow before Dark Phoenix reasserts itself. She tears off the headband and has all of the X-Men in her control, and Cyclops says, stop it, Jean. There's a face-off between the two of them. He says, your existence, your very creation springs from love, from the noblest emotions a human can attain, and now you want to deny that, to deny yourself. And the conflicts that are going on inside Jean start to come out. Yes, no, I hunger for a joy, a rapture. She needs the feeling of being Dark Phoenix, and she can't control that need. And at that moment, Professor Xavier shows up and gives her a mental blast. It stuns her, but does not beat her. She turns around and blasts Professor Xavier, but there, there's this mental war waged between Xavier and Dark Phoenix similar to what was going on between uh, Jean and the White Queen several issues ago, but on a much grander scale. And Xavier wins. He places mental controls over the Phoenix part of Jean Grey's mind, allowing her to be herself again, seemingly permanently, but not exactly so as we're going to find out. On a side note, Jean Grey's naked. Her dark Venus look has gone away, and somehow she's, I guess she's been transmuting her clothes all this time. It's its kind of been a mystique sort of effect. It's been her the whole time. I don't know. 
But in any case, she's not wearing anything right now, and her parents come out, they give her a robe, and everything looks like it's about to be a happy ending, when all of a sudden the X-Men blink out of existence. They disappear, and the Shi'ar Empire has returned. Oh, very much so. That's what we get in the special double-sized issue of X-Men 137, with yet another iconic cover from this series. The story has so many of these stock iconic covers. It opens with the Watcher, Uatu, introducing himself and to what how they observe things. Now, there is some of the dialogue here basically says that the Jean Grey we're familiar with is the Jean Grey that died and came back to life. So it doesn't quite jive with her return later, but it's kind of a minor point. But from here, this is where we learn that, yeah, a moment ago the X-Men had been on Earth. Now they're in front of the Shire Empire. And this is where the torch is being passed between Jim Selvacrip and Louise Jones's editors. They are both listed on this issue. And they meet Lalandra, and the X-Men are ready to defend Jean, saying, well, yeah, she was evil, but she's all better now. And then when Gladiator, this is Kalark, the Strontian Gladiator, not Melvin Potter, the Daredevil villain. (laughs) No. Yeah, not the guy who ran a costume shop and had mental issues. Right. But this is when he says that, yeah, you killed five billion people. And that reality just hits home with Jean, and it just shocks the rest of the X-Men. And now they're thinking, should we defend her in this case? But Xavier knows enough about the Shi'ar that he's able to to call upon some sort of ceremony, a, a duel of honor, that will circumvent the trial and give her a chance to survive and be left essentially in X-Men custody. The Kree and Skrull grudgingly agree to go along with this. Well, basically, it's like, okay, yeah, you can do this in terms of a duel of honor. That's fine. We'll go along with it as long as it goes the right way. Yeah. Yeah, so what they're saying is, yeah, we can play this game as long as you rig it. (laughs) Or at least win it. Yeah. Now we see the X-Men are a little bit out of their elements. Nightcrawler tries to burn off some steam by doing acrobatics, but the Shire technology is so far behind beyond him that there's frictionless walls. We we basically check in with each of the X-Men as they come to terms with everything, and we see each of them come to the realization that, yes, they're going to back Gene. Yeah, and they do so in now the blue area of the moon. That's where they've been trans- transferred, and they are going to be going head-to-head against the Starjammers. Now, Jean has chosen to go back to her Marvel Girl costume. They're not going against the Starjammers. Oh. The, the Starjammers don't show up. It's not, it's not oh, pirate sorry. time. Yeah. It's... <laughs> sorry, I said Starjammers. I meant Imperial Guard. Yeah, it's not It's not pirate adventure time. It's, uh, <laughs> it's Legion of Superheroes time. Yeah, Shire Imperial Guard. So, anyway, it is kind of nice to see here they do get a lot of the science right dealing with the blue area of the moon. Because it is it is a thinner atmosphere than on Earth. It's the artificial created atmosphere that was described in Avengers issues prior to this. It's a small habitable area of the moon. But the flying characters have a hard time flying because of the differences between the two. So there, there's, there's atmosphere, but there's still lower gravity. Yeah, there's lower gravity and thinner atmosphere, which completely changed the flight dynamics. Right. Um, really, a lot of this issue can be summed up in the X-Men fight the Imperial Guard and the X-Men lose. Yeah, and Wolverine drops in on the Watcher and gets kicked out. Yeah, it's a very well-done narrative. There's lots of great dialogue and lots of good scenes, and it's a double-sized issue, so the fight does take a while, but it's basically most of the issue is a fight, and Xavier watches on sadly as he watches his X-Men losing to the Imperial Guard. Well, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's just they, they they go to that point, but... It seems to be going fairly well, and Jean's holding it together, they're fighting, they're losing, but they're fighting, and it's not until Cyclops gets knocked out that we have issues. Yeah. 
Cyclops and Jean are having a last stand, and it it starts to go badly. Yeah, when Cyclops is in danger, just as his death snapped her out of Mastermind's control, his death or injury snaps it out here, and Phoenix is reborn. And the X Men realize they need to deal with it. So you know, Wolverine does the reverse of the fastball special, saying, "I couldn't kill her before. I don't think I could do it now. So it's your turn." But in this low gravity, I can throw you. So he throws the Human Colossus down at the Phoenix Gene. But Cyclops realizes he can't kill her. I mean, this started with him having shown that he could kill when he killed Proteus in the previous story arc. That's what he was lamenting on the first page of this, but he couldn't do it here. So he pulled back and he hit her, and then this is where we're getting to the point where things were rewritten at the last minute. Because what was actually going to happen before the the shift in the, the lead editors, the idea was that they would get through it, Gene would be remanded to, to the X-Men custody, and then it would be pretty much happy from there, and she would survive as Marvel Girl rather than Phoenix. Were they going to completely depower her? That was the impression I had. I don't know if it was completely or just, I think it might have been a temporary complete depowerment, and then she returns to her original levels, the, the telekinesis rather than telepathy. I don't know exactly what was planned, but I know that as it was going up the editorial chain, it was, I believe, Jim Shooter who looked at it and said, no, 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 she can't get away with this. She did kill 5 billion people. Right. And that was, as I said, the panel that changed it, because originally there would be no deaths there. And had she not killed billions, then they would have let it go. But here they couldn't. So the tail end of this issue was a last-minute rewrite, because it was ready to go to the printers before they said, no, 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 it can't end that way. So the last five or six pages were rewritten, which is why the last page here doesn't have the usual in our next issue, because they had to scrap everything they had planned for issue 138 and start from scratch. Which helps to explain why 138 is the type of issue it is. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah, basically what happens is we find out on the last couple of pages that Jean Grey has been allowing the X-Men to wear her down, and she's transforming faster than she wanted to into Dark Phoenix. And at the last moment, she um, has worked her way into a room where there is a weapon that can annihilate her, and she activates it mentally and basically blasts herself with that weapon. And for all intents and purposes, she has been annihilated. She is a burnt, scarred uh, mark on the floor. Oh, yeah. There is nothing left. And that's, as you said, that's what leads us into issue 138 after a little monologue by the Watcher. Yeah, the Watcher and the Recorder show up. Not out of nowhere, because the Watcher was on the first page of this of this issue. But it's, yeah. <laughs> lots of Lots of monologuing on the nature of humanity from the point of view of the Watcher. And then 138 is essentially an epilogue, a very brief one. We see the funeral scene of Jean Grey, and her family is there, and Cyclops is there. And during the course of the funeral, Cyclops mentally monologues through the entire X-Men history, from Jean Grey's first appearance in X-Men number one, all the way through the events of the team, as is told in the X-Men, with occasional emphasis on the relationship between Cyclops and Jean. Now, there's one, I think, small edit done here, because I don't think we saw Cyclops and Jean have their first kiss at that party. I don't think we actually saw that in the X-Men. I think that's actually inserted here. But um, but that's really the only change. Um, we get the course of the X-Men's team. We get the transition from the Silver Age to the revival, passing over the Secret Empire X-Men abduction storyline that was done in other books during the 
years where there were no X-Men monthly books. And yeah, the, the, the recap basically goes all the way up to the current events. And in the course of time that takes him to remember all of these things, the funeral finishes. Lalandra shows up and, well, she's not shows up. She is at the funeral. She gives Mr. Gray a memory crystal that will allow them to feel Jean's presence whenever they handle it. And I believe that it's going to be informed later that part of the Phoenix Force was actually in this crystal. But that's just me trying to remember stuff that I've heard from Rachel and Miles. And the story ends with Cyclops leaving the team, unsurprisingly to Xavier, and Kitty Pride arriving at the mansion to join the school. But nobody's there because at the funeral, so she has to sit on her suitcases in the front steps. So one chapter closes, and one chapter is beginning. And that's the end of the Dark Phoenix saga. It is. And I've always wondered, like I said, I know that they rewrote the ending where they remanded her into custody. I've always wondered if the idea was that in the next issue, Cyclops and Jean go off and live happily ever after, because then the rest of the long-term story you're telling would be the same, barring you know where we eventually see them pick up Cyclops a few months down the road. Right, right. Because obviously they can you can change your stories by that point. Yeah. Um. And again, I haven't read Phoenix: The Untold Story that tells the original ending. I'm just going based on what I memory what I remember of conversations from podcasts. And that is that they were going to depower Jean so she could continue to live, but not as not with her mental abilities. But that would still allow for her and Scott to go and have a life and and be civilians. And then he could be off the team. Instead of off the team because she died, he's off the team because he's living with Jean Grey, his love. Yeah. I mean, it would have denied Madeline Pryor. It would have denied us the existence of Lee Forrester, which would be a shame. But yeah, it would have been a very different story. It would have been. They would have spun us something very, very different out of those events, and we would have a very different narrative history. But, you know, way down the road, whenever they sort of retcon the nature of these events in order to bring Jean Grey back for X-Factor, they could have done that differently so that, you know, X-Factor could still have Marvel Girl on it and maybe not feel the need for her to be, you know, dead because of all these things. Yeah, they, they could have just used that as the point to bring her powers back. Yeah to repower her and make her a hero again. Those retcons necessary in order to bring Jean Grey back were absolutely absent from the minds of the writers and artists at this time. For all intents and purposes, this is the death of Jean Grey. This is the death of Marvel Girl, a.k.a. Phoenix, one of the major hallmarks of Marvel's pantheon ever since 1963. And I think it's important to read it Sure, you can look at it in the context of later retcons, but I think it's important to also take the story in its original context of this is the death of Jean Grey. <laughs> this is not some Phoenix copy when it was originally written. This is Jean Grey. Yeah, that was very much the intent. Even years later, these creators felt, no, she's dead, dead. They had some ideas for her now, but too bad she's dead. And the way they killed her, she couldn't really come back. And they made that comment at a convention. And a comic book fan attending the convention by the name of Kirk Busiak essentially stuck up his hand and said, uh, I have an idea for that, which is why he got co-plotting credits on those stories that brought X-Factor in. But it's it's funny, and he tells this story in, in an interview episode of the podcast we have mentioned so many times and hi- heartily recommend, which is Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men. He tells the story of how he shared this story idea with random person, and random person kept it in his mind in the back of his head 
for years. And so later on, when editorial decided they wanted to somehow bring Gene back, but they didn't know how to do it. I forget who this person was at Marvel that remembered the conversation with Kurt Busiek and said, well, we could do it this way. And by this point, Kurt Busiek is working for Marvel and has no idea that his ideas from years, a years ago conversation are being used now by editorial to bring back Jean Grey the way he said it could be done. And so it's, it's a series of fortunate events that led to the revival of Jean Grey. And it's kind of funny how it all happened. Yeah, but this is the world of comics. So in case you hadn't guessed, this did have a bit of an impact, not just on the, the movies, on the animated series, which did a, a Dark Phoenix story. I said last week, if I were to pick the top two X-Men stories, these would be the two. If I were to pick the one definitive X-Men story, this is it. Yeah. I mean, this has a huge impact on the industry. It has a huge impact on, as we said, Wolverine as a character, Jean Grey as a character, Cyclops as a character. I mean, this is really the first time that leadership of the X-Men has changed hands. This is what introduced us to the Hellfire Club, Sebastian Shaw, Emma Frost. This is what brought us Kitty Pride or Shadowcat. This is what brought us Dazzler, for what that's worth. This is the reason that Beast left the Avengers. There's so much that happened right here in a story that is just one of the more entertaining reads in X-Men history. Does When does Beast leave the Avengers? I thought that was way down the road. This is the, the point where he was sowing the seeds to leave. He was actually out of the Avengers. He did return to them a few months later, but there's a couple months of publication where he's out, and that's... Leading directly okay. from this, when he erased the tapes and left, when he does go back to the Avengers, he has to answer for that decision. Okay. I, I, you know, I, my Avengers read through only goes up to right about here because the Corvax saga is where I stopped. And that's right about the same time frame. So yeah, I, I, I realized after I answered that, that I don't know <laughs> the Avengers history after this point. So, okay. You're mentioning characters that got big changes. Even though Storm's role in this story doesn't have a huge impact on her character development. She is chosen as the leader of the X-Men in place of Cyclops, and that is a big impact on her as a character. Oh, yeah. And it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was the first time that either of the big two had not just a minority, but a minority female leading the team. You could be right on that, because I can't think of, well, yeah, I was going to say Saturn Woman. She is a female in charge of the Legion, but she's not a minority female. Yeah, I think you're right. It's kind of like Deep Space Nine, Star Trek, which was the first ensemble TV show that had a person of color leading the show, which seems, you know, that was 1994, three, whenever that started. And to think that we went that late in modern history, that recent in history before a TV show had a person of color leading the show, leading a bunch of, you know, white people. That's kind of amazing. But the X-Men did it here in 1980 with uh, Storm taking over the team. I didn't realize that was the first, and they almost did it sooner. They almost did it sooner, you said? When they were casting for Star Trek Next Generation, Yafet Koto, who was Parker in Alien, was one of the char- or one of the actors who was up for the role of Captain oh, Picard. Okay. That would have been very cool. That, yeah, that would have been uh, six years earlier. Yeah, and a very different Star Trek. Yeah, that would have been a very different Star Trek. <laughs> But this is not a Captain America, uh, Captain America, <laughs> Captain Picard Star Trek podcast. This is a Marvel podcast. And although that Marvel did do Star Trek, they did not make the list. No, none of their licensed properties made the list. But yeah, in terms of the, you know, the, the personal stories, 
This is one, unlike Days of Future Past, which I only read when I got back into comics as a university student, I actually read this in the classic X-Men reprints when I was in junior high and high school. Okay. So I, I read this as it came out. And it was, so this is one of the last stories I read before leaving comics the first time. I had only the vaguest notions of this story before reading it, which was, well, like I said, after earlier, it was after I saw the Last Stand film. I mean, I knew about Jean getting overpowered as Phoenix. I knew about the idea that the Dark Phoenix, so therefore Jean Grey goes dark. And I knew, you know, that she died as a result because I knew she got brought back to life later. But the actual story, the actual narrative, I had zero concept. So all of the Hellfire Club and all of that stuff, that was all new to me. Um, the Shi'ar Empire taking her and putting her on trial, that was all new to me. I actually read an issue of Exiles that spun out of that scene in a different way, and I didn't recognize what they were doing because I didn't know this story. I first read it in my first attempt at an X-Men read-through that was probably around 2010 or 11. That was the first time I tried to read through the X-Men, and I got as far as, like I said, around, around issue 150. Okay. Yeah, when I first read it, it was, for those that aren't familiar, classic X-Men reprinted the X-Men starting from Giant Size X-Men number one and moved forward. But between when those were originally published in the 70s and when the classic X-Men came out in the late 80s and early 90s, they had changed the standard number of story pages in a comic. So the classic X-Men, much like the classic Avengers later, had either extra story pages that were added in or vignettes at the end, or most of the time, both. So every issue had a vignette that was just a character piece set at the time of that issue. So when I first read this, I had seen even more work building up to it. So there was, I remember one distinctly where in the months before the even issue 129 came out, when they were still on Wire Island, there was a conversation that Jean had with Moira McTaggart where she was just, you know, out for a jog. And Moira was saying, how are you not freezing? And Jean was saying, you know, I don't feel hot and cold anymore. I suppose I should, but I don't. And little things like that. So that was how I first came into it, where they'd have the chance to go back as an afterthought and fill things in. So some of the surprises weren't surprises as they should have been, because mm -hmm. they were foreshadowing after the fact and telegraphing it a little too too clearly, because it was intended largely for people who had read it the first time and no longer own copies or whatever. Yeah, those first 40-odd issues of Classic X-Men and X-Men Classic that do those um, fill-ins, I have not read any of those, and I want to. But I understand that, you know, a lot of things that were kind of came out later, they would, they would go back and put in like the, the romantic attraction between Wolverine and Jean Grey, which was always very subtly done. The fact that Jean Grey, uh, the fact that Wolverine likes Jean Grey isn't really explicitly stated on the page until her first quote unquote death before she's Phoenix. Um, like when, during the five minutes when they think that she's dead, Wolverine kind of has a, a heartbreaky moment about it. But the cartoon, the films, and the X-Men classic scenes help to make that more explicit on the page than it was in the initial telling. Yeah, and some of it is just outright retcons. In the two-issue story where Moses Magnum is attacking Japan, which I guess would be issues 118, 119, originally he was given his powers by the Celestials in an experiment. In the classic X-Men reprints, it was Apocalypse. Oh, okay. Who hadn't he, appeared yet. There is no apocalypse at this point, yeah. No, it's he was a name in X-Factors 1 through 4. He didn't become a character until issue 5. And X-Factor is way in the future at this point. Oh, yes. But anyway, back to this one. That that was my first exposure. And then since then, I have read it a number of times, going through the, the DVD-ROMs, going through the Essentials, 
it's, you know, again, I reread it before X-Men 3 The Last Stand, because that was the inspiration for that film to some degree. Yeah, really, really loose inspiration. <laughs> I mean, the X-Men The Last Stand does not at all tell the Dark Phoenix saga. They tell the story of an evil Jean Grey, but they do not tell the Dark Phoenix saga. I would argue that X-Men Days of Future Past tells the Days of Future Past story, but really that story is pretty simple and pretty basic. And so for a two-plus-hour film, there's a lot of room for expansion, and they do a different thing with that film. X-Men The Last Stand, not at all what the comics did. No, no. Aside from Gene taking on the persona of the Phoenix with an incredible amount of power, there's really nothing in common. Yeah, so in case you've been avoiding this story based on your experiences watching that film, you can stop and track this down and read it, because, as we said, this is one of the seminal X-Men stories. Quintessential X-Men, one of the greatest things that Marvel has ever done. Yeah, I mean, if we go through the looking at it for deeper meanings... They, oh my gosh. They explicitly say, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that's what we're seeing both in terms of Phoenix... In terms of the Hellfire Club, which is essentially a power grab, that's their whole plan. Mastermind's plan of a power grab within that power grab, so he can run the Hellfire Club. And then that backfires on him. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I mean, none of them come out of it better than they were going in, when they're motivated by a grab for power. Right. So that is one consistent theme and moral I'm seeing from this. But even that is kind of subtle. I don't know if that was even being put in there by Chris Carter, or Chris Claremont, sorry on a conscious level or a subconscious level? Um, well, a lot of times messages and meanings can be subconsciously inputted or, or maybe even not necessarily intended by the author. They just end up being there and, and read by the, the readers. You have a really great interplay between redemption and self-sacrifice in this story. Jean Grey goes evil in this, and she redeems herself by sacrificing herself, both of which are laudable and noble, you know, motives for, for doing something. But here they go together. I mean, she did kill a star system of five billion people. There, it's, it's kind of hard. I mean, by any, by any sense of justice or legal, you know, mindset, she should pay for that with her life. And yet she makes up for the fact that she did that as, you know, in her, in her, in her evil mindset, in her, her uncontrolled mindset, she committed that crime. She makes up for the fact that she committed that crime by, as Jean Grey, putting herself down. And it's a really neat interplay between those two motivations of self-sacrifice and, and I guess redemption is not a motivation, but it, it, it happens as a result that I think is really neat. Oh, yeah. So I don't know if there's much more we can say. I mean, we've gone through the plot synopsis. I think those are the, the meanings there, I think. I mean, this is on the list. As we said, there's three factors. There's the historical significance to continuity. There's the entertainment value. And there's the messages and morals. And this, even if the morals were more accidental and conscious, they're all there. Right. So this is one that's just, it's on the list. Because however you choose to measure things going on the list, it measures up. So probably the seminal X-Men story. And honestly, well, I can't say that because I haven't read all of them yet. As a recording, recorded the so far in advance, I haven't read so many of the stories. But of the ones I've read so far that are on this list, this is my favorite. This is what I would put at number one. Even though I'm a Spider-Man fan before an X-Man fan, I 
get more out of this story than I do out of the death of Gwen Stacy. This is what I would put on top. Now that I, I, I may, as I'm listening back to this in the future, as future me is listening to this months from now, that might no longer be the case because there may be some other story on this list that I, that I end up enjoying more that I haven't read yet when we're recording. But as of right now. Yeah, as of right now, I have read 72 out of the 75 stories on this list. By the time listeners hear this, I'll be up to at least 74, probably more than that, because two of them have already been covered, and the, the last one is still coming up as number three, uh, Craven's Lost Hunt. But yeah, this is easily my pick for the best X-Men story of all time. But my pick for the number one Marvel story of all time, if we do a little bit of spoilers here, is actually the one that came in at number four that will be discussed next week. Daredevil Born Again. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so that's Daredevil issues 227 to 233. The official printout copy that Marvel published of this list said it was 227 to 231. It w- we will be covering up to 233. That was that just has to flat out be an error. The storyline's not done at issue 231. Okay. But this has been reprinted in the Daredevil by Frank Miller Omnibus Companion hardcover, the Daredevil Born Again hardcover, the Daredevil Born Again trade paperbacks, both of which have gone to new presses and new printings, and elements of it have been in the 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time and Son of Origins trade paperback. The issues are also available on Marvel Digital Unlimited and on Comixology. So Daredevil Born Again is easy to find, and I highly recommend doing it for reasons we'll go through in greater detail next week. Yay! So, John, would you care to just remind people of where they can find you before we wrap up? Um, please go and find me at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website where my podcast is hosted. Mine with my daughter, Lily. We do an Avengers podcast looking at the classic Marvel comics that feature characters from the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. Avengers Inspirations is the name of that show. And um, I think this is my final goodbye. Yeah, at least at the time of this recording, this is the last one you're scheduled to do. Okay, so I'm just going to take a moment then. I just want to give... Blaine, so many props for the work he has done on this show. This was this started out as kind of an off-the-cuff idea that was sort of thrown out there as, hey, would anyone be interested if we did something like this? And so many people responded that he took it upon himself to put forth the labor and efforts to make this show happen every week for 75 weeks. Any podcast that can do a weekly production for 75 weeks gets props from me but this has been you know <laughs> really really huge investment of time not only for the for the uh you know editing and recordings of the show but the readings the uh, finagling with co-hosts all of the stuff that goes into making a production like this happen there's a lot of hours that goes in behind the scenes for something like this and um i just wanted to say hats off to you sir the the last year and a half of this podcast is a milestone of achievement. And whenever I refer people to comic book podcasting in the future, I'm always going to say also there's a 75 greatest Marvels podcast out there that you have to listen to. And so thank you for the time and effort you put into it. It's, 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 it's an achievement. Thanks for the kind words. It's, it has been a lot of work, but it's been totally worth it. I'm actually very happy with how this has turned out. Well, as both a participant and a listener, I've, I've heartily enjoyed it. So thank you for having me on so many times. I hope that you, the listener, have, have been able to tolerate my, my ramblings on here. And, uh, and yeah, thanks for having me on. And yeah. Thanks for coming on so often. That's if I didn't have a lot of people stepping up, volunteering to step in on these different episodes, it wouldn't have happened at all. They sort of swarmed to it though. <laughs> <laughs> well, many did, but 
in any event, I think that wraps up everything that we need to cover for this week. So we've talked about what we've got for essentially the reading assignments for next week. If you're choosing to read along at home, you can rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher or what probably whatever feed you're getting it from. You can share the links with friends. And until next week, thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a whole film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you!